the international language of love for men is sarcasm, right? And making fun of one another. You don't, you don't really love somebody until you make fun of them. And they don't really love you until they make fun of you. Women in the room, that is not your love language. We get it. We fail sometimes, but we get it. And my friend, uh, Jamie Rasmussen, who is here this morning to preach uh, to us and share from us, uh, share with us uh, a message from God's word. I, I had all of these sarcastic remarks prepared that I shared with him last night, but Jamie, I cannot share any of those because I love you so much. I wanna be just, hide behind sarcasm and humor. Uh, Jamie came to Christ in his teen years, late teen years, and then subsequently got into ministry. He's pastored in Detroit, Michigan. He's pastored in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, which is his hometown. He's pastored in London, Ontario, all right? Another American that spent some time in Canada. We love that. And now he's pastoring at Scottsdale Bible Church. Uh, I can count on one hand the number of men in ministry that I respect their preaching, uh, their leadership, uh, the truth that they have for me, the encouragement that they have for me. I would not be where I am in ministry or in life, quite frankly, if it wasn't for uh, my friend and mentor, Jamie Rasmussen, who's currently serving as the senior pastor of Scottsdale Bible Church, the church that I come from. Uh, he's been a friend of mine for nine years, and to be honest with you, if you don't like him this morning and you think I'm better, that's awesome, okay? I like that. But if you don't like him, that's fine because he's really here for me. This is my pastor, and I hope that he is yours this morning as well. So would you join me in a big Baby Glenn welcome for Jamie Rasmussen. Very good, young man. It is not. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, we um, are incredibly proud, thank you, of Lucas Cooper back at uh, Scottsdale. When I uh, first got to Scottsdale Bible Church in 2007, uh, Luke was playing guitar in our singles ministry. That was his contribution to our church, and we did a talent review of our many staff back then and find, try to find out what God was doing in and through them, and it became very obvious to us that the Lord had equipped and gifted Lucas uh, with some incredible gifts for ministry, and so we spent quite a few years working with him. We gave him an entire chunk of our ministry to develop a full worshiping congregation, and uh, the kid just hit it out of the park, if you know what I mean. I mean, just an incredibly gifted young man and uh, quite a preacher and teacher. He really is. And so all sarcasm aside, we are so proud of Lucas, and it really is my honor to be here today. Uh, Lucas, I also need to let you know, was, was and is our coolest pastor that we ever had in the history of Scottsdale Bible Church. I mean, that's what you guys got. And, and I knew that because I'd see him in the hallway or in a meeting at Scottsdale Bible, and he'd call me G. For like years, he called me G. He'd say, hey, G, what's up? Or, hey, G, what do you think of this? Or whatever. And I thought my name's Jamie, not G. And so one day I asked one of the other younger pastors, what does G mean? And he said, I think it means gangster. And I thought... <laughs> And then I, I didn't even want to know why he calls me a gangster, but I think that's just part of that hip young generation that I'm certainly not a part of anymore. But I remind Lucas that in my day, I was just like him. 
Hey, uh, I am very excited to deliver a message to you today that is my wife's favorite message. My wife Kim is with me here today. We've been married 28 years. We've got three adult children, and Kim has heard me preach for almost 30 years. And uh, when I was coming here to Bayview Glen, I said, hey, I'm going to do this message. And she said, no, I, I want you to do the message on hope. She said, our culture needs to hear about hope. Canada, Toronto needs to hear about hope. And I said, done. My wife has the gift of discernment, and so I think that gift is always in place. So that's what I'm going to talk with you about today. But I always do something before I preach, before I speak, and that is we ask God for his blessing. So would you all bow with me right now, and let's ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Father, it indeed is good to be here today, worshiping you, focusing our sights upon you, uh, looking to you, fellowshipping with each other, and God, our hope in the midst of all of that is that somehow we would meet you, that you would speak to us, that you'd be pleased with us as we take time out of our schedules to worship you as a congregation. I pray, God, that as we open your book now, that we believe is your revelation to us, it's your truth to us, that you might speak to our hearts and our minds, each one of us individually, collectively as a whole, and that, Lord, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see that which you have revealed. And God, our commitment back to you is that we will deflect all glory and all praise to you for that which you do in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and the church says together, amen. amen. So one of the most famous passages in the Bible, hands down, that just about everybody, even in our secular culture today, knows is 1 Corinthians 13, 13. It appears on Hallmark cards, it been, been on billboards at times, and it says simply, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is, say it with me, love. Some of you didn't know that. You need to go back to Sunday school. The answer is love. And I want you to think about those three things that Paul the Apostle tells us remains, faith, hope, and love. These are the three things God has given us until his son Jesus returns, the three handles, if you will, that we're supposed to latch onto in life. And I would submit to you that our culture today, and certainly our church culture, talks a lot about two out of three of those things, right? I mean, obviously we talk a lot about love. We write romance novels about love, singers sing about love, our secular culture talks about love, churches talk about love. I mean, we all talk about love. And I would submit to you that we also talk a lot about faith. I mean, even in the States, and I'm sure here in Canada, it's kind of vogue to be a man or woman of faith. We might mean different things by that, but faith is talked a lot about today in popular culture and certainly in the church. But I need you to think with me today about hope. I don't hear a lot about hope. Right now in the States, things are a mess politically for those of you who keep up on it, and very few people are talking about hope. I just don't hear a lot about hope, and I mean in our personal lives as well as hope for the church and society. And the tricky thing about it is, is that people might use the word hope a lot today. I mean, we use it in our everyday language, but even the way that we use the word hope belies a complete misunderstanding of what the Bible means by the word hope. So check out this. Think about how you use the word hope in your everyday language. You say, I hope it doesn't rain today. 
Or you might say, I hope that the Jays go to the World Series, which that ship sailed already recently. You might say, I hope my kids turn out okay. I hope that I don't get sick this winter. In other words, you might use the word hope in your everyday language, but you're using it more in the sense of an expectation of something that might or might not come true, right? You use hope as sort of a sincere wish, a calculated long shot, something that might come true, but it also might not come true. We're not really sure. You see, we hope for something, and by the very nature of using that word, we assume that it may or may not come true. Hope for our modern-day world is a glorified wish. And yet, here's what you need to know, and that is that biblical hope Hope as defined by the pages of the Bible is much more profound, much deeper, and more meaningful than any vague expectation or even a wish of something that might or might not happen. In fact, in the Bible, hope is a sure anchor that you and I can attach our lifeboats to in the midst of the most stormy seas that we might go through in life. It's one of the three things that remain. Think about that. Faith, hope, and love. It's got to be more than a wishful expectation. And if you're latching on to this at all today, then I want to right now give you a working definition for hope. If you don't remember anything else about our time together this morning, latch on to this definition because this is what hope really is according to the Bible. And I think I have a monitor here. Let's see it. And this is is what hope is. It's the ability to see beyond your present circumstances. Give me one more click here. It's the ability to see beyond your present circumstances to that which is unseen. That's what hope is. We're going to drill down on this definition in a minute, but it's the ability to see. You're seeing something beyond the present circumstances that you're in right now, but you're seeing, it's a paradox, that which is unseen. In about 30 minutes, you will be completely good friends with this definition of hope. You know, there's a story in the Bible that very clearly illustrates this definition I'm putting before you. It's the story of Abraham. You might have heard the story. Let's recap it right now. Abraham lived thousands of years ago in Old Testament times. He was called by God at the age of 75 to leave his homeland of Haran to inherit a better land and begin an entirely new nation. Pause right there. This is really important in understanding Abraham. He was going to become the founder and the father of a new nation. If you ever want to nail down your understanding of Abraham, that's it. God called him in a unique way to be the founder and father of a new nation. And what a great challenge and calling. And so Abraham left his home. He packed up all of his family and his possessions. And he headed out toward the land of Canaan, where God said would be his new land. There was only one problem, however. When he got there, it was already inhabited by an entire group of people known as the Canaanites. And having no resources to take over this vast country, Abraham becomes a desert wanderer for the next 25 years, waiting for God to do something to fulfill his promise. And you remember what the promise was, you're going to be a founder and father of a new nation. Now, during this time, as Abraham was waiting for God to fulfill his promise, um, there were, he, he had to somehow believe that God was going to come through with his promise, but there was two 
very formidable roadblocks in his way. The first one was simply this. Abraham thought, how can I be the fond founder of a nation already inhabited by people, right? I mean, if you remember, I said it was just Abraham and his extended family that left Haran. I mean, you might have an extended family. Can you and your extended family take on an entire nation and defeat them? Probably not. And so Abraham knew that this was a huge problem for him and for God in fulfilling his promise. But then the second issue was even more problematic, and that was Abraham thought, how can God make me the father of a new nation when my wife Sarah and I have no kids? And by the time it got well into him wandering in the desert, Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. Now, guys, you need to park in front of that for a minute. I looked it up again this week. In the Guinness Book of World Records, the oldest woman to ever give birth to a baby is 66 years old. 66 years old. And that was with in vitro fertilization. And the oldest woman to ever give birth naturally is 59 years old. And so here you got Sarah, who is 90 years old, living 3,000 years ago without any of the technology that we have today. Abraham was no dummy. He knew that there was no way a woman that old was going to have a baby. And every time Abraham asked God about these two things, every time Abraham said, the Canaanites are in the land, and I got no kids, and we're really old, you know what God said to him? Don't worry Trust me. God tends to say that a lot, doesn't he? When you and I go to him with our problems, God tends to say, this is his number one answer, don't worry, trust me. I mean, Abraham was in a really difficult spot, similar, as we're going to see in a minute, to the difficult spots that you and I get ourselves into. Where we start off on the right foot, everything seems awesome, we're doing great, and then we hit some formidable roadblocks that seem to stop us dead in our tracks. Can you relate at all? I mean, whether it's on your job or in your marriage or with your kids or with your finances or with your retirement plans or with your health or even in your spiritual walk, you and I all hit dead ends at times. We hit roadblocks that seem impossible to get over. That's where Abraham was. And again, God's number one answer was, don't worry, trust me. I'm going to come through for you. Now, with all of this understanding, combined with our need for more hope in our lives, I want you now to look with me at our theme verse today. It's Romans 4, verse 18. And Paul the Apostle, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, is looking back at this Genesis account and all that happened to Abraham when he was trying to become the founder and father of this nation in this holding pattern where God was saying, don't worry, trust me. And look at how Romans 4.18 makes sense of this. This is amazing. Paul says, in hope, against hope, he, Abraham, believed in order that he might become the father of many nations. I love the way it words that poetically. In hope, against hope, Abraham believed. In other words, he hung in there. He kept on. He maintained his faith. And as you're going to see in a second here, the maintaining of his faith had everything to do with this idea of latching on to hope. I like how the New International Version says it. It says it probably even more uh, uh, poetically. It says, in hope 
against all hope, Abraham believed. <laughs> he uses that word all. In hope against all hope, Abraham believed. And so somehow, we're going to look in a minute at how, Abraham was able to hope against all odds, and in that hope, that gave him faith, and that faith allowed him to believe God. And as you and I know, because maybe you've read the end of the story, God did come through after wandering in the desert for 25 years, a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman give birth to a son. I guess the Guinness Book of World Records doesn't believe the Bible because that should be the record if you ask me. And do you remember what they called their son? Anybody know his name? Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the three patriarchs in the book of Genesis. They called him Isaac. And Isaac in the Hebrew means laughter. And the reason that they called him laughter is because when Sarah was first told that she was going to give birth to a son, she laughed. You guys got wives like that? I mean, she laughed. And she said, there's no way that I'm going to give birth to a son. And so when she eventually did, based on God's activity in their lives, they called him laughter. Now, the question I need you to wrestle with in the few moments that we have remaining is this. How was Abraham able to hope? I mean, the scriptures tell us that in hope, against all hope, Abraham believed. And what I need you to wrestle with me right now over is how could Abraham do this? I mean, again, think of all the opposing factors. Decaying bodies, years with no results, no refuge or home, a land already inhabited by a more powerful and numerous people. How in the world could Abraham maintain his hope in the midst of all that? And I would submit to you that it all comes back to this definition that I asked you to remember, if you don't remember anything else today, and that is remember what hope is. And that is that hope is the ability to see beyond your present circumstances to that which is unseen. I'm going to submit to you that this is precisely what Abraham did. And to best understand this definition, I want to break it down into two bite-sized chunks for us in our time remaining. First, I want you to focus on the ability to see beyond your present circumstances, and then we're going to look to that which is unseen. So first, let's talk about the ability to see beyond your present circumstances. This is really key to hope, guys. Some of you right now need a massive infusion of hope in your life. You don't have any idea how you can actually hope beyond the predicament that you're in. I'm telling you, this is the key. It begins with the ability to see beyond the here and now. You have to be able to look up from being mired in your circumstances now if you're ever going to get the beginning of hope. I mean, looking back at our story of Abraham, it's uncanny, but this is exactly what he did. He was not stuck or mired in focusing on the immediate awful circumstances in front of him. Somehow he was able to look beyond them, look up, and I would submit to you that's the beginning of hope. If you don't believe me on your own sometime this afternoon or this week, I challenge you to read Genesis chapters 12 through 19. Just sit down sometime this week, open up your Bible, it's way in the beginning, and read chapters 12 through 19 of the book of Genesis. It's all the stories of Abraham. And as you read it, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to match up your problems against Abraham's problems. And it'll really put your problems in perspective. 
I, I, I'm just going to spoil or spoil it for you. Spoiler alert. Uh, in Genesis 12 through 19, we see Abraham wandering in the desert for 25 years, and he confronts a king who wanted to steal his wife. He finds himself in the middle of a small war between warring nations. He, he deals with corrupt nations like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he experiences a harsh famine in the land, which means there was no food. And then he sees some of his relatives taken into captivity. Now, again, I, I don't know many of you personally, but I'm just guessing that's not the kind of problems you have right now. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe some of you have had your wife snatched by a king. I don't know. Maybe some of you have found yourself in the middle of a small war between nations that you're visiting. Maybe some of you have visited the likes of Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe you've experienced a harsh famine. Maybe you've had your relatives taken into captivity. But I doubt that's all happened to you within eight chapters of your life. I, I, I think you need to appreciate what Abraham was going through because my point is simply this, that in the midst of all of that, he didn't get stuck. And don't get me wrong, it's not like he lived in denial. I mean, he, he knew that his circumstances were real and that they were real tough, but he was able to look beyond them. And I'm going to simply submit to you that it's easy to look beyond your circumstances. Watch this. You simply need to stop focusing on them and look up. We're going to see in a minute what you look up to, and that's going to really rock your lives. But you have to begin with the simple stuff here. Just look up. And I'm telling you, it works. I mentioned earlier I have three kids. Uh, they're 26, 24, and 22. They're all adults now. And uh, when they were really young, we were at Lucas and Amy's house last night, and we were with their little one, Kaya. Um, my, I just loved watching my kids learn and grow. I don't know about you, but I just loved watching them experience new things. And one of the things that you learn in watching a kid discover new things is that there's not just a discovery phase, but if you notice this, there's a frustration phase. In other words, whether they're trying to put together a puzzle or learn to read or learn to tie their shoe or in today's world, learn how to use the remote or the computer, there's a, a learning curve in which they can get very frustrated. And it wouldn't be uncommon for one of our kids to get frustrated and just scream in frustration. And I'll never forget one time when we were living in Detroit, Michigan, my first pastorate, my little one, Hannah, was about three or four years old. She's our oldest. And, and, and I was in the other room. We had a very small house. And I hear this blood-curling scream from the other room. I mean, I thought the dog was eating her or something like that. And, and I come running into the other room. And this is the picture I saw. She was sitting like this. And she was looking at her shoe. And her shoe was on, but it was untied. And she's looking down at her shoe, and she's literally crying and screaming. And she says, I can't tie my shoe. And I said, well, I, I think we can fix that. And she goes, no, Dad, you understand. I cannot tie my shoe. I've been trying and trying and trying, and I can't get it tied. It won't tie. And she's focused on her shoe. She's looking at her shoe, and she's just screaming and so upset. This would set a pattern for the rest of her life. But anyway, she's screaming and so upset. And... And, and, and I just tried to say to her, Hannah, I, I'm here. We can tie your shoe. And she would have none of that. She's just focused on her shoe, and she's talking over me. And, and finally, I did something that I did quite often back then. I looked at her, and I said, Hannah, look at me. And initially, she wouldn't do it. She goes, no, Dad, you don't understand. I, I said, Hannah, look at me. No, Dad, you don't. Hannah, 
Look at me now. And slowly she looked up at me, tears running down her face, and I looked into her eyes, and I said, Hannah, I know how to tie a shoe. And I know how to help you tie a shoe. And I think we can tie this shoe together, and I think you're going to find that satisfactory. Now, you got to watch this, because this was so fascinating. Before we even solved her problem, before we even tied her shoe, her tears started to dry up. She started to breathe easy, and I could see her entire countenance change. I, I mean, she started to experience what? Because it's our topic before us today. Hope. I hadn't even fixed her problem yet. I hadn't solved a thing. She was still mired in the realm of an untied shoe. But the reality is, is that because she looked up, now watch this, into the eyes of her father. Because she looked up, she was able to find hope. And again, I'm telling you guys, she found hope because she looked beyond. And that's the way that hope works. As soon as we can look beyond our circumstances, I'm telling you, this works. It kicks in. You see, here's what's really real before you and I today. Some of you here today really need to get your eyes off the circumstances you're in right now because the reason you have no hope is because you're mired or unduly focused on the things right before you. Some of you walked in here today with a tremendous amount of financial burden upon you. I mean, this is 21st century Canada, and things are expensive, and things are tough, and you have debt, and you don't have enough income, or you've lost some income, you're having trouble paying bills. Here's the deal. There is help for you, and God is a God of massive provision. I really believe he is, but hope only kicks in when you get your eyes off your immediate trouble and look beyond. We'll see what we look to in a minute, but you got to get your eyes off your troubles. Others of you walked in here today, let's just talk very frankly for a minute, with some nagging sinful habits that you've been trying to get over for years with no avail at all, and you've lost hope that you're ever going to find victory. I mean, you thank God for the blood of Jesus. You thank God that he's forgiven you of your sin. And by the way, he has. But you and I both know that there's some things in your life that you've been trying like crazy through all the self-discipline and prayer that you can to get over it, and you're just out of hope. You eat too much. You smoke. Uh, you watch too much TV. You work too hard. You got bad language. You're cynical like Lucas. <laughs> or, or, or maybe... More seriously, you watch pornography, or you gamble, or you drink too much. I, I mean, these are all things that even Christians struggle with today. And here's my point. You guessed it. Hope will only kick in once again if you stop myopically focusing on your sin. Hope only kicks in when you look up and look beyond. Some of you are mired in health problems today. I mean, you wonder how you're going to get over your health problems. Again, hope only kicks in as long as you don't obsessively focus on those things. Again, think about it. It makes sense. If your only line of sight, if your only vision is the problem before you, then of course that problem is going to consume you. Amen? I mean, how could it not? 
Whatever you focus on is going to be that which you give your most attention to. And, and Christians tend to be problem-solving kind of people. We want to solve all of our problems. We want to solve them now. And the reality is, is that there are some problems you're not going to solve quickly. There are some problems that you need God's help on. And in order to get God's help, you've got to look beyond the problem. It's the first step to dealing or to getting some hope. The ability to see beyond your present circumstances. And here's the cool thing, gang. Every one of you here today that has the Holy Spirit in you has the ability to look up. Amen? You do. Some of you don't believe you do, but you do. Just like my three-year-old daughter, Hannah, <laughs> that can look up from her shoe into the eyes of her heavenly father, or eyes of her father, you can look up from your circumstances into the eyes of your heavenly father. You truly can. And that's where hope begins to kick in. Now, thank goodness, biblical hope does not end here at all. In fact, it's at this point that hope just begins to take root. But notice with me the second part of hope, and that is that hope looks to that which is unseen. Now, this one we have to parse out. Hope looks beyond your present circumstances to that which is unseen. In other words, latch on to this, guys. Hope doesn't just look beyond our problems to nothingness. It looks very specifically and very clearly to something, and that is that which is unseen. And it's at this point that you start to see that hope is a paradox. If you look up paradox in the dictionary, it's defined as a seeming inconsistency. And hope is a paradox because at first glance, it seems like I'm doing doublespeak, like I'm just talking gibberish, that, that it doesn't make sense. You see what is unseen. But I would submit to you it's a seeming inconsistency. That at the end of the day, the Bible knows exactly what it's talking about when it defines hope for us. And hope really is the ability for you and I to see what is unseen. Let me share with you a couple passages that might show you this. The first one is from 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have also been fully known. So it's talking about earth versus heaven. And it says basically in earth, we only see in part. We are finite, God is infinite. And so we can only know and see in part. We see through a glass dimly. And that's why hope sees what is not fully seen. Now look at this passage. This one even encourages me even more. Romans 8, 24, it says, For in hope we have been saved. Now watch this. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? You see, that's biblical hope. It sees something on the horizon. We're going to call that something in a minute here, God's promises. But it doesn't know fully how God is going to do those things. And so hope, by its very nature, sees the unseen. It's exactly what Abraham exercised himself in. He, he was able to look beyond his present circumstances to the promise of God to be a founder and father of a nation, even though he had no idea how God was going to do that. He was not going to get mired in warring nations or kings around him or all the shenanigans going on. He was going to focus his sights on the promises of God, even though he couldn't fully see how they were going to come true. And in so doing, God gave him hope. And that is exactly how hope works. 
Biblical hope looks beyond current circumstances to that which is not completely seen. We know in part. We know something about what God wants to do in our lives. And just latching on to that, even though it's not fully seen, gives us faith and perseverance in the present. I want to give you an analogy that I think many of you will get, even though if you don't, haven't run a race like I have, and, uh, and, and I think it will help you see what we're talking about here. Years ago, and I mean years ago, I used to run marathon races. Now, does anybody here know what a marathon race is? I don't know what it is in kilometers, but in the United States, in miles, it's 26.2 miles. What would that be, Luke? It's almost 40 kilometers? It's not 190 <laughs> kilometers. Somewhere around 40, I'm guessing. Anyway, somewhere near that. Imagine running 26 miles or 40 kilometers. I mean, some of you get tired driving that far. And so I, I can't even imagine anymore running that. But that's what I did back in the day. And, and, and I was prepared when I ran my first marathon race that at some point during the race, usually around the 20-mile mark, I was going to hit what experts call the wall. Now, the wall in a marathon race is simply a point where you get to in the race, again, after running, say, 32 kilometers, uh, in which you are absolutely physically and emotionally depleted. You got nothing left. And sure enough, in my first marathon race, I got to the point where I hit that wall. It's obviously a figurative wall. But everything hurt. I felt like I could go no more at all. I felt like I wanted to fall on the ground there and just collapse. And that's what happens when you hit the wall in the marathon race. But all the articles and research I'd done said you need to push through the wall. You somehow need to get beyond the wall. And the only way to really do that, and I found this an amazing psychological trick, is that the experts said to envision the finish line when you hit the wall. Just think about the end of the race. Think about, about that finish line that was only about six miles down the road. And as you envision the finish line, that's going to give you hope and encouragement to keep running. There was only one problem. In both the marathon races I had ever run, I'd never seen the finish line. Because <laughs> it wasn't where the starting line was. And, and so I, I was trying to picture something that I had never seen. I was trying to envision something that I didn't have all the details about. But I'll tell you what did work is that I knew something about finish lines in general, right? You ever seen a finish line at a race? Most of us have. I knew that there would be a banner and ropes that I would run into. I knew that there would be a cheering crowd there. And even my best friend Bill, who promised to be there at the finish of my first marathon race, I knew there'd be refreshment tables with water, and I knew that there'd be bathrooms. And I knew that it would be the end of the race and that I could find a quiet spot to lay down in and hopefully die. I, I knew that, <laughs> that that would be there. And as I was running in this race, I was picturing all of those things in my mind's eye. And watch this. Just the exercise of doing that kept me running. It, it, the ability to see beyond my present circumstances to that which is unseen gave me hope. I'm telling you, it really works. And this is precisely how biblical hope works. That you and I latch on to the promises of Scripture and that as we do that, God promises, he promises to give us, give us hope. 
And in the brief time we have remaining, let me just share with you two general areas that you and I need to latch on to God's promises in. Two things that we see that are not completely seen that I promise you will give you hope no matter what you're struggling with right now. Uh, the first thing is, is that we see a better life in this life. I think that's one of the points here. We see a better life uh, in this life. It's really true that God is a God who desires to bless us in this life and give us things to spur us on. Have you ever found that? So one of my favorite passages here is found in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me see the scripture up here on the screen, maybe put up on the big screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, or chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. I love how Paul the Apostle says this. It's a little bit lengthy, but read this uh, along with me, because this is really cool. He says, and our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers in our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even life. So pause there. Paul is in a really, really bad place. He says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. Now watch this. On him, uh, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. I got to tell you, this is one of the most potent passages in all the New Testament. Because Paul the Apostle is basically saying that I got to such a bad place in life that I didn't even want to live anymore. Any of you ever been there? <laughs> I have, for another story. But I've struggled with depression and discouragement to such a degree that I thought heaven would be better than this hell. And so I can relate to getting to that point in life. And Paul the Apostle, tough, gritty, full of faith, Paul the Apostle got to that point in his life. But then he dug deep where the Holy Spirit lives inside of him, and he says, but I'm going to set my hope on him. I'm going to look beyond my present circumstances to him who is unseen. And notice how Paul ends there. He says, as I set my hope on him, he will deliver us. Now, we have to be careful with that phrase. The TV preachers would have you think that all you got to do is put a quarter of faith in the slot machine, pull the bar, and you'll get your miracle, right? Right? And I can tell you right now, that is patently false. It's not biblical. God is under no obligation to do your bidding just because you put a quarter of faith in to give you your miracle. What God promises is that he will deliver you. But the kind of deliverance that he gives is completely up to him. Give me a head nod that that makes sense to you. And even as you read on in 2 Corinthians, it's one of my favorite books in the New Testament, you'll find that God gave Paul comfort. He gave him a sense of his presence. He gave him a sense of purpose to continue to move on in spite of his weaknesses. We actually know Paul still struggled with his discouragement. <laughs> and he still struggled with being in jail and he still struggled with persecution. So God didn't take away all the circumstances of Paul's life. Now watch this. God simply gave Paul a richer sense of himself. And that richer sense of himself was enough. Why? Because God is a relational God. But we have other examples in Scripture where God will actually give you physical deliverance. We believe that as well. Here's what we believe. God has promised that as we hope in him for a better life in the here and now, he is going to do something to minister to your spirit. He's going to do something to make it okay. 
He's going to do something to give you, as the psalmist says, though there's weeping in the night, there's joy in the morning. He's going to do something to give you joy down the pike. Why? Because he loves you. And as you set your hope on him, he will come through with you. Now, very quickly, there's a second area that we set our hope on in, in God, and that is that we see the unseen, and that's that we see a better life in the hereafter. So we don't see a better life just now, but we see a better life also in eternity. And, and I know how some of you think, you're thinking, really, really, I got a hope for eternity? I mean, that's the best you got? Well, yeah, that's the best I got. Because believe it or not, I've done an entire study on the word hope in the New Testament, and over and over again, like a scratch CD playing the same song, <laughs> it, it tells us to hope for what comes next. Look at some of the scriptures really quickly that show us this. I, I, I think 1 Corinthians 15, 19, it says that if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So we just don't hope for a better life here. We hope for a better life there. Show me the next one here. Titus 1, 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. And then show me the last one here. Uh, John 14, 2 and 3, Jesus is speaking. He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. See, here's how this works, gang. There are times in my most down moments, in the moments where I don't seem to have much hope, that I look up, beyond the here and now. And even if I can't envision what a better life looks like this side of heaven, I think of the next. And I'm telling you, just have you ever done this? Just dreaming about what heaven might be like <laughs> starts to instill hope. You know, we don't know a lot about what heaven is like, but there are some wonderful visuals the New Testament gives us. Have you ever noticed them? Like no more crying, no more tears, streets of gold, which is probably a figure or an analogy, but still, it's, 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 I mean, like beautiful, beautiful architecture. Or how about this one? The full presence of God in which you will stop whining about all the things that you whine about this side of heaven. Can you imagine being so overcome and so overwhelmed with the presence of God that your joy is complete, your discouragement is gone, your tears are dried up, and you're in that sweet spot that you just get an inkling of now. Can you imagine what that will be like? I love how one pastor said it. I was listening to his preach a message in heaven a while back. He said, there's not going to be a group of people in heaven saying what? This is it? I mean, nobody's going to be thinking like that. Nobody's going to be discouraged in heaven. Nobody in heaven. I know it's going to be hard for you to think Christians think like this. But nobody in heaven is going to sit there and go, I don't like this song. Because you're going to like all the songs in heaven. And even if it's not your song, something has changed in your soul that's going to make you like the song. And what is that thing that's changed? You're in your final home. You're home with God. And it's going to be an amazing place. And again, we don't think enough about heaven because we live in our quick fix, want it now, focused always on the here and now, 21st century American Canadian society in which they don't even believe in an afterlife most of the time. And we're duped into thinking that that's the way we should think. I believe better of you guys. We're just passing through. Isaiah says we're like blades of grass, here today and gone tomorrow. <laughs> and yet eternity is forever. 
And we're to think of that on a regular basis because thinking of that gives you hope. Let me wrap up with this. Richard John Newhouse once said this. He said, the times may be bad, but they are the only times we are given. Remember, hope is still a Christian virtue and despair is a mortal sin. <laughs> and he's right. God does not want you to give in to despair. Some of you are right now, and I get it. I have a lot of empathy on that as a pastor. But the reality is, is that hope is what God has in mind for you. It's one of the three things that remain. And we are truly people not without hope. The ability to see beyond your present circumstances to him who is unseen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time today. Thank you for your word, which always tends to give us hope and always lifts our sights beyond the here and now. I pray, God, that as we uh, give thought, each of us, to our own lives here today and to the things that we need hope in, that God, by the power of your spirit, you would speak to our hearts and minds. And God, may none of us escape the reality that we can look up, that we can get hope, that we can trust in you. And Lord, may we do that. And as, you, and as we do that, God, give us hope. Give us joy. Give us peace. Give us the fruits of the Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.